0: You are now listening to The Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified.
1: Hello, I'm Maisha Kai, the Lifestyle Editor of The Griot, and welcome back to another episode of Writing Black, The Griot's podcast that celebrates Black writers. And today we have Peabody and Polk Award winning journalists, Robert Samuels and Tolu Olorunipa. These are two uh, amazing journalists from the Washington Post and based on their previous reporting on George Floyd, they co-authored a very deep and telling exploration of the man's life titled His Name is George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice. And I I think it's important to note that since we interviewed these co-authors, their critically acclaimed book has been nominated for the National Book Award. So congrats to them on that. But before we get started with our conversation, let's hear a quick excerpt I feel embodies the importance of this work and its
2: subject. For as long as anyone can remember, George Perry Floyd Jr. had wanted the world to know his name. He was young, poor, and Black in America, a recipe for irrelevance in a society that tended to push boys like him onto its margins, but he assured everyone around him that someday he would make a lasting impact. As a child, he had a simple way of letting people know when he wanted to be taken seriously. He would touch them on the forearm and look into their eyes to ensure he had their full attention. So his sister Jaja stopped what she was doing one day when 13-year-old Floyd rested his right hand above her wrist. Sis, he said, I don't want to rule the world. I don't want to run the world. I just Want to touch the
0: world?
1: Hi, you guys. How are you?
0: Hey, Myisha. We're good. How's, How's it going? We're well with you.
1: You know, it's uh, it's it's all right. This is, you know, this book, as I said, is a very special book, and um, you know, I tell this story semi often, not because I'm relevant to anything in the story, but because, you know, I am. Actually, a Minneapolis native. And so the last few years watching um, certain things unfold, uh, whether it be Flandre Castile or Dante Wright or obviously George Floyd, have been uh, both professionally relevant to me as a journalist, but personally devastating. And that was something that I thought about a lot when I was reading this book of yours. Um, Because, you know, as journalists, we're often told not to be part of the story right? And here the two of you are. And I don't know, how do you separate yourself from, um, you know, as, as Black men in America, how do you celebrate, your, how do you separate yourself from the story of George Floyd?
0: Uh, I, I can jump in uh, real, real fast, Maisha. That's a, that's a, it's a tough question, because um, we got into this process um, as journalists. And, you know, sort of the goal of, our reporting was to tell a story, to find out what happened, to find out the background, to find out the, the, the details of you know, something that people might want to know about. And so you can approach any story like that, but this isn't just any story. This is the, the birth, in many ways, of a second civil rights movement in, in, in mm-hmm. our country that erupted in 2020. It's a story of the backlash that happened to it, and it's the story, obviously, of one person's life. That was taken away, um, and telling his story and telling the story of America through his life was, um, you know, something that was all-consuming for us. And that there was so much for us to cover, so much for us to uncover. This book, you know, goes through hundreds of years of history, you know, and minute details about George Floyd's final moments. Um, and so there was so much for us to kind of deal with. It. It was. Um, it was all-consuming, um, but at the same time, you know, we're human beings, we're not robots. And so it was right. important for us to grapple with our own emotions as we, you know, talked to people who knew George Floyd and talked to people who mourned over him and people who were still in, you know, emotional distress over his death and over, you know, how his, the aftermath of his death was, was um, you know, such a global movement. Um, so it was something that we all had to kind of deal with and we all had to sort of figure out. Um, what we were going to do and how we were going to maintain our journalistic integrity and maintain, you know, our, our you know, our uh, approach to the craft while also balancing a number of different emotions, and those emotions range from, you know, laughter and learning about George Floyd and who he was and his sense of humor to, you know, deep sorrow over, you know, the plight of Black men in America, the plight of Black Americans generally. Yeah, uh, the the plight of our country and trying to deal with some of these racial issues, uh, and so it was a roller coaster, um, and we're still kind of working our way through some of those emotions. Um, but we didn't try to, you know, be robotic journalists as we took on this process because we knew that just wasn't going to work. This was too emotional of a story to just mm-hmm. be, you know, completely disconnected from it.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, i I'd, I'd also add that one of the lessons that really became clear for us is that objectivity is oh, so often the wrong way to think about things. When we're looking at stories, we're making a decision. right? We're making a decision that you're doing something that's going to be of value to readers. That And you try to do things and you try to report things fairly. But it's impossible to ignore, or at least it was impossible for me to ignore when we were going about doing the reporting, the truth that I was a Black person who, is, who got to live and who had an opportunity to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you say it's not for you, but it kind of was for you. Um, and about so many of the things that we go th- we live with every day, and also being able to acknowledge some of the history that George Floyd contended with. Uh, So often, when I hear anecdotes about his community, it sounded like my community back home. When I heard the advice his mother gave him, it sounded like the advice my mother gave me. And more so than complicating that, I realized that it would be a tremendous gift for readers to have people who have the journalistic journalistic acumen like Tolu and me to be able to take these sorts of experiences, translate them to a larger audience, never compromising our ethics, but being sure that we've got a story that was authentic and true.
1: You know, and, and it is true. I mean, you, you, this book to me is really um, as much of as it is a tribute to George Floyd's life it's a tribute to investigative journalism um, and we know that uh, I mean, granted I live in Chicago so you know I, I live in the legacy of Ida B Wells sitting on every corner here <laughs> in terms of what it means to be an investigative journalist. you all work for one of the you know premier outlets in the world um, in terms of, of investigative journalism and and just, you know, fact-based reporting, which of course people have tried to convolute so much over the last uh, few years. Um, How did this project come to you? Is this something that you pitched? Is this something that the Washington Post was like, yo, we need you to go out and do this. Like how, how does this, how does a book like this come to be? How do you all end up partnering on it and how does this happen? And you turned it around so fast. So I'm going to get back to that part.
3: Yeah. So this story, it started as a project with the Washington Post that we produced in October 2020. And during that summer after George Floyd died, the Post-it had what is sadly become a standard story for when a person who dies in the way George Floyd dies um, is produced. It was longer than usual. It had some dalliances with his criminal record but it was missing what so many of the other stories were missing and that was an actual discussion of george floyd's soul you Mm -hmm. got facts about him but you did not get to understand who he was how he saw the world why he did some of the things he did and as we were talking about expanding coverage that story was held which was a remarkable thing for something for the Washington Post to do. We had a meeting and we started thinking about what ways that we could actually t- handle and discuss systemic racism mm-hmm. because there are a lot of readers who had little clue and were just beginning to understand what systemic racism is. Uh, and so we were in a meeting and someone, and I believe it was Tolu said, it would be great if we could look at the life of one person and see how systemic racism impacted their lives. Mm -hmm. And our editor said, "Uh, I've been thinking about that and I keep on thinking if that person should be George Floyd. There was a concern, right? Initially that that sounded like a gimmick, but here's the thing about writing and reporting. As we began, to go through the work of looking at these institutions, uh, housing, education, Black land loss, health care, criminal justice, um, we kept on seeing these echoes from what these really smart people in ivory towers were telling us and the lived life of George Floyd as he was growing up in CUNY homes and as he moved to Minneapolis. It was really stunning. and. We got this chance, which was a chance to tell the story in a deeper way, go through some of the things we could not go through in the original series, and really help show who George Floyd was. And we knew that if we showed who George Floyd was, we'd have a better understanding of who we are as a society. Because so many of the things that George Floyd contended with are things that millions and millions, untold numbers of people in this country are still contending with.
1: Absolutely. And I want to hear more about the soul of George Floyd, but we're going to take a quick break. And then we'll be back with more Writing Black and with Tolu Olavunipa and Robert Samuels.
2: Witty. Honest. Entertaining. Introducing Dear Culture with Panama Jackson on the Grio Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Grio mobile app for all the black culture debates you don't want to miss. Also available wherever great podcasts are heard.
1: All right. And we are back with two incredible authors, Robert Samuels and Tolu Olalunipa. Who have written? His name is George Floyd. Um, in partnership with, the, with their employer, the the Washington Post. Um, we were just talking about the soul of George Floyd, and one of the things that really stuck out to me in this book. Um, first of all, you know the amount of research done, and I do want to talk about that more in depth. But this thing that I think, you know, would stick out to anybody: this is a man who said "I love you" to people regularly. Like that was his thing. Like he would just, you know, it didn't matter if it was like his homie down the block or his child or his lover or his, you know, his, his siblings. I love you was his constant refrain. And, you know, we live in a world and in a media cycle, you know, we work within a media cycle that regularly villainizes black men. And here's a black man who made, I love you, his refrain. Like, how did that strike you? Like, Finding that out, and, and and that becoming part of this narrative that you were building around him.
0: Yeah, it struck it struck us the same way, and we opened the introduction of the book with those very words because we would hear them. You know, we did over four hundred interviews for this book, uh, with his mm. siblings, with his uh, nieces and nephews, aunts, uh, uncles, friends, lovers, co-workers, um, people who did time with him, and over and over we'd hear you know, as people recreated conversations that he had with them and talked about what he was like when he was alive, we'd hear that he'd sign off from conversations with I love you, just to say uh, that as the final word that he would have before ending a conversation or before, you know, ending a text uh, message chain, just to put that love out into the world, because he knew in the kind of community that he he grew up in, with the kinds of struggles that he faced from a very early age, from poverty to over-policing to segregated schooling, That there was a lack of love uh, and, and society treated him in a sort of loveless way and he wanted to inject some of that love back into uh the conversations and relationships that he had even with strangers even with people that were just hanging out on the street you know he'd just you know hang out with them and as he was uh you know showing them a little love he'd say i love you you know keep your head up take you know take care of yourself floyd's emotional declarations were nothing new to his siblings as a teenager, Floyd would stop to give his sister Jaja a hug and tell her he loved her before leaving their house with his friends, just quietly enough to keep the other kids from overhearing. And it was, you know, also important for us to note because of, you know, what you talked about with the way some of these stereotypes get put forward about Black men who look like George Floyd, who are large, who, you know, mm-hmm. may be hanging out on a corner or who may not be in a suit like I am. Um, you know, there's you know quick stereotypes that people have, and we wanted to make sure that we dispelled people of those stereotypes. Even as George Floyd became one of the most well-known faces in the world uh, in the summer of 2020, people didn't really know much about him. They, you know, used the the 10-minute video clip of him, you know, screaming for his life and trying to, you know, breathe as, you know, that's what I know about George Floyd. But he was much more than that. He was somebody that had his highs and his lows and. Uh, you know was not just the person who was arrested or just his arrest record or just uh, anything that people you know in this social media age are so quick to you know shrink someone down to this one clip or this one experience. Mm -hmm. He was someone who was complex and and he was someone who was comical. He was someone who had a sense of humor that people gravitated to. He was someone who had stature in his community and he used that stature to try to get people to put the guns down and try to be more, um, you know, more loving in their, you know, in their own community. And it was important for us to relate as much as we could find out about him so that people didn't just take that 10 minute clip of him and Think that was the full story because some people would take that clip mm-hmm. and say oh he's someone who we should have compassion for some people will take that clip and say oh he should have just complied with the police and you know he died because of his own making and so we wanted people to at least get the full story get much more than just sort of that that clip of him dying and hopefully we thought that people who learned about you know how he was struggling to breathe long before the police officer came and, and met him he was struggling to breathe in you know segregated schools and. Uh, as a result of poverty in and, and the housing system that was also segregated, and as a result of the healthcare system that you know, left him struggling uh, with a number of different health issues. Uh, we wanted people to have that same level of um, concern that they did for seeing him on the street with a knee against his neck. Uh, as Robert said, there are millions of people who might not have their death captured on camera but are sort of slowly dying in America, and we want people to know that that's happening and at least understand how that happens through the life of someone that they came to know uh, on his final day. So it was important for us to try to tell his story in a more full way than most people would have gotten just from seeing him die uh, on video.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously that was one of the most devastating uh, things that most of us will ever see. Um, I want to come back to that, and we will in just a moment when we come back with more Writing Black. The Griot Black
4: Podcast Network is here. Everything you've been waiting for. Black culture amplified. Find your voice on the Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot
1: mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. All right. We are back with more writing black and our two friends today, Tolu Olavunipa and Robert Samuels, who are the authors of His Name is George Lloyd. You know, this this is such an interesting title to me, actually. In a way, I know it's like the most straightforward thing you can you can say, and obviously, you know, uh, the typeface here uh, meant to evoke the "I am a man" posters from the, um, uh, Memphis sanitation strike. Uh, you know, I i I'm, which is in itself striking, but also, as you've pointed out, George Floyd is both. Such a unique and special soul who most of the world will never get to know, even in the way that you all got to know him posthumously. But he's also an everyman because we see this happen every day, <laughs> you know, really, it feels like. Um, and I'm sure it does, really, like, you know, for all the things that we see captured on camera things that we don't. Um, why did you name the book this? Why did you feel like that was how you wanted to frame this?
3: The title was actually one of the... Longest debates we had over the course of reporting and writing the book. Wow! But there are a few things. Yeah, it it we, we went through a few of them. But there are a few things that we're hoping this would evoke. One is the actual declaration of his humanity. You see, it happens several times in the book where he's confronted by an institution, and the first thing that he can do to reassert himself is to say his name. That's hmm. not in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? That's a reminder that he's not just a mural or a hashtag. His name is George Floyd. He had a name. The other thing that we wanted it to do was we wanted it to give a nod to the actual racial justice movement. and. In so many ways, we thought of this book as an answer to the question of Say His Name, because what we hoped to provide, right, was this not just exploration of who he was. And I, you know, I believe completely that having a story looking at George Floyd's life would be important to itself, in itself, but we also wanted to recognize that there was so much more of a value in telling this story because it would help provide a tangible example for some of the things that we're still questioning in this country about how the history of the past connects with the present. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, you know, um, for me as a writer was I had to confront some of my own stereotypes, right? Uh, and if I had them, I'm sure other people have them too. George Floyd, as he lived, was, you know, the type of person who, if I lived in the neighborhood, a teacher or a pastor or an authority figure would kind of tell me to stay away from, you know, the boy on the corner, the one who seems to have problems. And it's so true that. We, can tend, we have a tendency to dehumanize one another when we see someone struggling. Yeah. That we sometimes close the book on thinking about who they are and how they got to be there. And so we wrote, we created the title in that aspect too, with that in mind, that we're really opening a book to take away from this idea that, you know, maybe you don't want to learn about this person because you might learn something you don't like. No, all of it's relevant, all of it connects to our larger humanity and that's a part of the stuff that we wanted to share.
1: All right. Um, well, I wanna share more about George Floyd's life and we will in just a few minutes when we come back with just few seconds actually, and we'll be back with more Writing Black. The Griot Black
4: Podcast Network is here. Everything you've been waiting for. Black culture amplified. Find your voice on the Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot
1: Mobile app and
4: tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard.
1: All right, we are back with Writing Black and our guests, Tolu Olorunipa and Robert Samuels. And we're talking about his name is George Floyd, a really remarkable and incredibly researched book and I want to get into the research now because again I think this is obviously not just a feat of literature if you will um, but a feat of journalism in terms of the amount of research you did I I believe totally you said you guys interviewed over 400 people for this Um, and most impressively you earned the trust of some of George Floyd's nearest and dearest who were the ones most qualified to tell the story since he's not here to unfortunately tell us the story himself. I mean, you know, I, I, I obviously I can't help, but wish that he had loved to tell, tell the tales. I'm sure many, many of us do. Um, but you have in your epilogue, you talk about, uh, <laughs> sitting with Ben Crump, who's become a, obviously a very well-known figure, you know, in the racial justice movement. Um, and him kind of putting you off behind some other journalists saying, they're gonna ask easy questions, you're gonna ask the hard ones. And this book is full of answering hard questions. And you managed to get his siblings and all these people who were so close to him to confide in you. was that an effort or did you find that they were eager to to share and to give you as much access as possible? Because I can imagine they were getting it from all over and you all seem to got have gotten some unprecedented access here.
0: Yeah, there there is um, you know sometimes an idea, especially when you have black reporters that um, it's easier to get black uh, sources or you know subjects to, to talk to you. Um, and you know this is a very difficult, issue. Uh, this is a, a lot of mm-hmm. mistrust in the media. Um, there have been people who have been burned in, in, in part for you know, trusting people in the media. So building that trust and earning that trust was um, was difficult. Um, it was just as hard for us as it would have been for, for other uh, people who have to build sources on their stories. And we went through the same process of talking to people very clearly and saying, um, you know, this is what we want to do. And they saw, that, so they saw this process as a project, as a partnership in a way with us to be able to tell George Floyd's story, but also to tell the country something about the America that George Floyd grew up in. When we first did this series, we titled it George Floyd's America. Um, and we wanted people to know about his world. We wanted people to know about the 46 years he spent living uh, before he met Derek Chauvin uh, in Minneapolis mm-hmm. in the summer of 2020. And that was part of the, the 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 pitch. That was part of what helped people to get on board with the idea of you know giving us access to his story, his life story, telling us about him. And, and we found as we spent more time with them and, and uh, speaking to you know his siblings and his uh, fa- nephews and his family members that they started to trust us more as we spent more time with them with them as we p- published that first. Um, series alongside with our colleagues. Uh, they saw what we were able to produce. We, they saw how much care and nuance we took with the project. And that opened up more doors. And they said, you know, if you're going to put this much time and effort into telling George Floyd's story, remember, as Robert said, at that first uh, you know piece that we were going to do was actually held in the summer of 2020. And our series didn't go out until October, mm-hmm. several months later, after we'd taken the time to do the research, to spend time with the people, to fact check things and make sure that everything was airtight and make sure we weren't putting out any misinformation because there was a lot of misinformation floating around in the summer of 2020, that we were going to do the research and and I think that helped to earn the trust of uh, people in George Floyd's orbit and they said, you know, these folks are serious, they're going to take the time to get it right and I can't tell you how many people have um, reached out to us even since the book and said, you know, you guys took the time to tell the story and do it right and, and they appreciated that and that is bigger than any, you know, review that we can get in any media or any, you know, accolades that we can get out there. It's just hearing people that we spoke to who entrusted us with their stories, with the story of their loved one, with information that sometimes wasn't flattering and sometimes wasn't easy to share, sometimes was um, emotional. uh, And they felt that we were able to to carry that that forward with, you know, nuance and care and uh, that we were careful with his story and that we weren't reckless with it. We weren't just trying to exploit anything. Um, And the last thing I'll say, uh, Robert, often talks about how we didn't want this to be an exploration of Black pain. We knew that there was pain in this story, but we knew that telling George Floyd's story, telling the story of his entire family uh, over the generations was telling a story of hard work, of love, of support, of grit. Uh, And we wanted to make sure that that shone through as well. That was the case in George Floyd's life, picking yourself up, and dusting yourself off. It was the the case in the life of his family, going back all the Mm -hmm. way to to the time of slavery and how they uh, worked hard and continued to work even when uh, things were taken away from them. And so we wanted to be able to tell that story and tell it with all of its nuance and all of its uh, tragedy and hope and love. It was all in there. It's an American story. So we wanted to take it uh, in that direction. And we were really grateful to George Floyd's loved ones for helping us to tell that story.
1: All right. I want to tell the story of uh, journalism as well. Um, And we're going to do that in just a second. So we'll be right back with more Writing Black.
4: The Griot Black Podcast Network is here, and it's everything you've been waiting for. News, talk, entertainment, sports, and today's issues, all from the Black perspective. Ready for real talk and Black culture amplified? Be inspired. Listen to new and established voices now on the Griot Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot Mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard.
2: Floyd and the other students at his predominantly black high school had received a very different message about the pathway to wealth, opportunity, and freedom. At Yates, which suffered from crumbling facilities, aging textbooks, and other vestiges of segregation, gifted athletes like Floyd came to see their bodies as the means to escape poverty. Yates excelled in sports, achieving statewide recognition even as its academic record flagged, the result of a system that concentrated impoverished students with significant needs in underfunded classrooms.
1: All right. And we are back with more writing black and Tolu Olorunipa and Robert Samuels of the Washington post and their incredible book. His name is George Floyd. You know, 2020 um, became a watershed moment largely because of George Floyd. Um, Obviously, you know, we also were dealing with Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. I mean, So many stories, but this wasn't a new American story. This was just a vivid one. And it was the first time, um, I think, since the civil rights movement that we really had had the first civil rights movement, I should say, that we had really had this visual evidence that was motivating so many people in front of us. But it was also a moment in which um, we really began to discuss what it means for us as black journalists to have to cover these stories. You know, we've been covering them for years. <laughs> we have been, you know, just kind of just moving along, you know, gritting our teeth and burying it. Um, and this was a time when people really started to, for better or worse, consider the emotional impact that stories like these had on their coworkers, whether they were in journalism or not. You know, all of a sudden you get all these stories of like, please stop asking me if I'm okay, why coworkers? And please stop, you know. um, you know, you spoke a little earlier about objectivity and what we should and should not accept, expect. But um, did this change the dynamics of how you approached your writing, your reporting, your newsroom, your colleagues, or how they approached you?
3: I'm not sure about how they approached me. I try not to think about that, but Fair. I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you that. This I consider this reporting opportunity to be the most important thing that I've ever done as a journalist. And I came into it sort of on the back end. You know, I was not there during the original protests. Um, and the reason I wasn't is because I had no real interest in being there. Um, Because, you know, after being in Ferguson, um, after being in other high-profile, very contentious situations, after being (laughs) kicked out of a Trump rally, uh, I knew how dangerous and how heart-wrenching it could be. And I was actually one of those people who had to put out a note on Facebook telling people to stop asking me if I was okay. And... One of the things that I did was the first thing I did was I um, spent time in Tulsa, Oklahoma with a group of white women who were trying not to be Karens. They were, you know, they were doing all the things that so many people did. And I, I was, that really inspired me to start looking for journalism that it felt the country really needed and that that sort of exploration of systemic racism in a practical way using some of the tools that I knew how to use would be really helpful but along the way I also learned a lesson about why we shouldn't stop and it really deepened my mission in terms of talking and thinking deeper about some of the historical and structural basis bases for why things happen you know there's a part in the book where we talk about uh, a rally that's attended by Courtney Ross, who's one of George Floyd's girlfriends,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, this happens during the this happens during the course of the trial, and she's with a bunch of uh, mothers, largely mothers, some other some wives, some other girlfriends who've lost family members or loved ones to police violence. And I was really stunned, and it was completely overwhelming to me uh, because there were so many women who had stories of losing someone in a way that was similar to the way George Floyd was lost that I'd never heard of before.
2: Hmm.
3: And at that point, I sort of said to myself, you know, after this, I'm done. It's too much. And as I'm having that discussion with myself, someone gets a text message that says, they've shot another one and that was Dante Wright mm-hmm. in the suburbs of St. Paul yep. um, and all those women, and it turned out Courtney had known Dante, but all those women, they didn't stop. They just kept going and they marched to the site and they did it all over again. And it made me realize um, that racism in this country, it's not just sort of a stain or a dark cloud. It moves. And the impact of it continues to grow the longer it exists, that the it felt that you couldn't escape it until it was confronted and defeated. And for me as a journalist, it meant that a lot of my journalism had to be taken with that lens, that if I wasn't acknowledging the problem, I'd be allowing it to happen and not using my power of the pen, not using the skill set that I have to do something that could be such a pervasive force in the country.
1: Mm. I mean, that gives me hope to hear that, but I wanna talk more about hope as soon as we come back. We'll be back with more Writing Black in a second. Hey, Griot fam, it's Maisha Kai, host of Writing Black on the Grio Black Podcast Network, and I have a little treat for you. Not only has Writing Black been blessed to have as a guest acclaimed actor Omar Epps, but Omar and his publishers Delacorte Press have a little treat for you. That's right, Omar is giving away signed copies of his debut YA fiction, Nubia, The Awakening, co-written with Clarence A. Hines, to some lucky subscribers. But you heard that right, subscribers. If you wanna get your hands on a signed copy of Omar Epp's YA debut, you've got to subscribe to Writing Black. You can subscribe on the on the Griot Black Podcast Network or anywhere you find your podcast. but you gotta post it. You gotta take a screenshot, post it, and tag us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. That's right. All you gotta do is subscribe to Writing Black wherever you listen to your podcast and tag the Griot Black Podcast Network. And you too can have a personally signed copy of *Nubia: of the Awakening by Omar Epps himself. So hit that subscribe button. Do it. You know you want to. Don't you want to spend Sundays with us? Come on. You love Writing Black and we love you. All right, we are back with Writing Black and our guests this week, Tolu Olo Renipa and Robert Samuels, uh, who have written, his name is George Floyd. Um, and we were just talking about this, I, you know, listen, I was uh, so struck by what you were just saying, Robert, This because um, I think the fatigue is real, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. we fight about against racism, our parents fought against it, their parents, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and so on and so on and so on. And to be, you know, as we know, Baldwin said, you know, to be Black in America is being a constant state of rage. And I, when you write something like this, which I totally agree with you, like, listen, I hope you write all the things forever and ever because you all are brilliant. But if this is the last thing you write, you have done tremendous work here. Um, But how do you, in the midst of that, I think maintain a sense of hope? about it you know like how do you keep showing up because I think that like that emotional that 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 exhaustion is very real for very many people not just journalists but you know people all over
0: yeah that that is a key question that we titled the last chapter of this book American Hope uh in part because we wanted to leave the reader with a sense of hope and in part because um you know looking at the long arc of history um there are reasons uh, to be hopeful if you look at how far you know how much progress has been made and how progress happens in this country it doesn't happen in a straight line it's not just things continually get better and better and better especially when it comes to civil rights there's a movement forward there's progress and then there's usually a backlash and we saw the backlash to yeah. george floyd's yeah. death and the protest that Uh, erupted afterward and the sense that we were all kind of moving in the direction of becoming more aware and becoming more uh, committed to racial justice. Um, You know, people were buying books, people were reading and trying to make themselves more aware. And then we saw the backlash. We saw, you know, books being banned. We saw uproar over critical race theory and, you know, people winning office by saying, you know, we're going to stop talking about race in school and not teaching our children about the country's history. And so, you know, it was important for us to highlight some of the history and highlight how there have been, you know, previous periods of backlash where, you know, that's just sort of the way things work in this country. Um, You know, people in power don't give up power without a fight. And so it was important for us to talk to someone like Jesse Jackson, who's gone through um you know part of the the civil rights movement from the past and is now living and to see you know movements continue the black lives matter movement and he was someone who was incredibly hopeful in his discussion with us telling us that you know there is a reason to be optimistic even as progress is hard won even as it's you know often seems like it's happening too slowly if you look very closely that progress is continuing to happen those activists continue to have hope that if they take 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 to the streets that something might change I mean people aren't just protesting for you know the, their health they actually want things to change and they believe that by collecting together by having their voices heard by taking direct act, direct action that things can change and we would be remiss if we said that everything is the same as it was before George Floyd died things have changed in a number of different places we have seen you know, corporations, corporate America, part of our culture, parts mm-hmm. of our cor- parts parts of our uh, education systems, and other places within our country, uh, has change. And we've also seen police uh, police departments and policing generally, and our uh, lawmaking uh, shift in some ways. Obviously, it hasn't been what everyone wanted after George Floyd died and what the activists called for. But there have been places where they ban chokehold. There have been police officers who are in jail today because of what they did, including the police officer who murdered George Floyd. And so that kinds of progress, even when it's incremental, is something to look at, something to focus on, even as people continue to fight for more progress and for more action and for things to continue to get better.
1: Yeah. You know, Jesse is another one of those figures who here in my, uh, my, my home city of Chicago, where I'm <laughs> sitting right now, is a huge figure. And just model, what, what, keep hope alive, right? So uh, we're going to do that. But we'll be back in a second with more Writing Black. All right. And we are back um, with our two incredible authors, Robert Samuels, Tolu Olurunipa, um, talking about his name is George Floyd, talking about the man himself, but also talking about the impact on Uh, American culture, American journalism, Um, I want to, you know, on a very big level, like going macro with it, um, you know, you've talked a little bit about this, but what do you hope, you know, people who engage with this work, people who um, care enough about who George Floyd was as a human being to read this book, what do you hope they take away from it? How do you hope that we use this as a tool um, moving forward in, in racial justice?
3: yeah um before we get there i just wanted to add to something um that i think is
2: important
3: you know i just don't go want, for it <laughs> i i i I don't, I don't want to give anyone the illusion that they should continue journeying and or trafficking and things that are not good for them you know and one of the things that i think is important is you know tola and i have each other um and having that outlet made things a lot easier um, in terms of the weight, to know that we're doing it together. Um, but when we think about the work and what we hope it does, for me, I hope it accomplishes a few things. The first thing is to remember that George Floyd was a man of flesh and blood, that he loved and he, he was loved. And that, you know, I think about, when the three words that people associate with him so often are, I can't breathe. But mm-hmm. if you knew George Floyd, and I hope people do after they read or feel like they're a little closer to him. I hope those three words are, I love you. Yeah. Because that's, those were his words. Um, the other thing is sort of the answer to this question that he asks one of the police officers. That still rat- rattles in my head which is, why don't you believe me? And we hope that in telling George Floyd's story that we readers will be able to see the connections between some of the things that we learned about or some of the things that they don't want to teach anymore about in this country and how they reverberate.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: The book takes, takes great strides in putting together the steps So these theoretical ideas become real. The third thing, and this is really important, I think, was something that I I didn't intentionally think about. And this is going to sound strange, but when I read what Tolu and I had put together, the first thing that came to my mind was what a... Beautiful people. I mean, because throughout the course of the book, you see a host of folks, largely Black people, never giving up on the full belief, the full fruition of the American dream. It is their optimism that powers the American hope that is the title of the last chapter of the book. And I hope people get to see that, that, you know, yes, Joe Biden's in the book and Jesse Jackson's in the book and all these names that we do know, but the true stuff, the stuff that makes the miracles in this country and the things that I hope really resonate happen because a group of people who have continually been oppressed and neglected and disregarded, continue to believe that this country can be better than it is. And that I think is the ultimate takeaway of what we did.
1: You know, I ask a question of every guest on this show, so I'm gonna ask the two of you. And as uh, journalists, I'm very excited to, uh, as writers in general, I'm excited to hear your answer. Um, I mean, I'm so inspired by this book, but who inspires you? Who do you read? Um who who kind of is your touchstone or your guiding lights when it comes to your craft?
0: Oh gosh. Um put me on the spot here. Um sorry. <laughs> Horatius, I, I know. <laughs> too much, too many books that I can't even um I can't even single anyone out. Um but you know for for this book in particular, like we did a lot of historical research and reading a lot of biographies, reading a lot about, you know, the civil rights movement about the black American experience. Um, and I found a lot of um, a lot of power in that. You quoted James Baldwin before. I mean, there's 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 some ele- there's an elegance in uh, in his writing and his oh, truthful yeah. depiction of what it is like uh, to have an experience in, in this country that's different than the, the majority experience. And I think that's there's something beautiful in, in that, and there's something we took from, from that as well. Um, and um, you know, from all of the, the civil rights leaders who, you know, depicted that experience and, and used the power of a story, used the power of, of, of a speech, the power of um, language, the power of nonviolence to uh, get across um, the, the moral outrage of, um, you know, of what it's like to, to experience poverty and to experience injustice. I think some of that is reflected in our work as well, and I take a lot of inspiration from, from from that as well. Not only, you know, books, but also you know speeches and songs and plays and things that, um, you know, get at mm-hmm. the, the, the artistic power of um, of language to uh, to get across a message. I think there there's power in, in having that sort of di- diverse uh, pool to to look to look at. And so you know, your August Wilsons, your Martin Luther Kings. Um, your, um, your your songstresses, your songstresses of the civil rights movements. Um, you know, those are folks that, that mm-hmm. I, I turn to from time to time and I find a lot of inspiration in the power that they were able to put together um, under really, really difficult circumstances.
1: I love that. And you, Robert, anybody specific?
3: Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, God, I can talk forever, but I I, I think I think, in this case um, I thought so much about Toni Morrison and yeah. not just her work, but the way she sort of, her approach, you know, the idea of not writing for the white gaze. I, you know, like there was I think there's sometimes a pain or a fear or a um, a presumption that if you're writing about racism, that ultimately you're writing for white people, um, that you know these are just things Black people just kind of know. Um, a lot of the stuff that are in these pages, I didn't fully know. Um, but also in sort of looking at the beauty of language and thinking about the fullest, most honest depictions of Black people, I think, are just really instructive. Um, as we're doing the book, you know, it sort of builds on the good foundational work of journalists, Black journalists like Nicole Hannah Jones and Tana Hesse Coates, who have really forced the conversation in terms of rethinking about how we present some of these issues to readers. And then I thought about, particularly when we're thinking about how to end this, and it's important to note that we did not know how the story was ending as we were writing it. You know, We were living these experiences yeah. in real time with the people who we were talking about We had no idea Derek Chopin would be convicted. Mm-hmm. We had no idea the Police Reform Act wouldn't pass. Um, but when we're thinking about how to end I started thinking about great American stories, and I read Death of a Salesman. I read a little bit of The Grapes of Wrath, and I read The End of The Great Gatsby. And I did that because I wanted to make sure that our work had the feel and the the feel and the sentiment of who we think of as great American depictions and literature to me, George Floyd deserved no less. And so when we were doing the reporting and thinking about writing, I had those works on my mind a lot.
1: Well, uh, I always say that there's a black canon, but I agree with you that, um, this story and, and others belong in the American canon. Cause this is a very American story. Uh, Tolu and Robert, thank you so much for joining me on Writing Black and being so candid and, and being so thorough in telling the story of George Floyd. His name is George Floyd. Um, and I got I have to show this as well. Um, I believe this portrait was by Robert Hart. Uh, Richard Hart, Richard. excuse me. Richard Hart, artist for George. And it's a beautiful um, image on the back of this book. But I think everybody should engage with this. I can't wait to see what else you all do. But again... This is go take a rest because this was incredible. Thank you so much for uh, joining us and talking about this today.
3: Thanks so much for having us. We appreciate the chance.
1: All right. Well, this is the part of writing black where I tell you what I'm reading and how I'm inspired by the guests that we've had each week. And, um, you know, George Floyd is has become such an important part of our American conversation. Um, but there's another book that is another great part of our American conversation. I mean, there are many, but uh, this one I really love by Claudia Rankin, uh, Just Us, A Conversation. Um, this book, um, if I'm not mistaken, actually came out prior to George Floyd's death, which um, I guess makes it all the more poignant. but. Claudia, you know, she's a she's an award winning poet. She is um, just a tremendous talent, tremendous scholar. Um, And uh, she wrote this book. uh, She's, you know, wrote this book as, as part of a series of conversations, actually, with white men, you know, who <laughs> last time I checked are the dominant power in America. Um, and she, she, and these, these conversations range from strangers in the airport to her own husband. It's um, a multimedia piece. So there's art in here, there's poems, there's uh, essays, there's dialogues. Um, and it's just such a striking piece of work. And she's just such a striking, striking uh talent and visionary and thinker. And I think as we continue to evolve this American conversation, dissect this American conversation and really understand the undercurrents of biases, um, both uh, those held by white people and those that we hold ourselves, as uh, Robert pointed out in our conversation, I think uh, this is uh, an incredible book to read. So just us. And yes, that means justice, but you get it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Writing Black. As always, you can find us on the Grio app or wherever you find your podcasts.
4: The Griot Black Podcast Network is here, and it's everything you've been waiting for. News, talk, entertainment, sports, and today's issues, all from the Black perspective. Ready for real talk and Black culture amplified? Be inspired. Listen to new and established voices now on the Grio Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Grio Mobile
1: app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard.